Beginning in the fall of 1975, God began the process of wrecking my life. He unleashed a wrecking ball that demolished the foundations of my then life, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. The wrecking ball that God used was the Bible. When I entered Tufts University, I thought of myself as an atheist. I grew up in a church-going family, but it didn't live anything close to a Christian life, not anything close to God-honoring life. I thought about God from time to time, but I, I couldn't see God, couldn't sense God in any way. I considered myself an atheist. But early on at Tufts, I met Christian students, got to be friends with a couple of them, good friends, and they kept inviting me to join a Bible study group that they were in. And each time I said no, again and again and again and again, I just said no, not interested in any way until the day that I said, okay, yes, I'll come. And the only, you know, I'm not sure why I said yes that time. The only answer that I can give is that somehow the Holy Spirit broke through my defenses and allowed the grace of God to stream in enough to enable me to say yes to that invitation. So I joined this Bible study group. And I began reading the Bible for the very first time in my life. And as I began reading the scriptures for myself, they began to resonate with me. They began to ring true. They, they, beca they became self-authenticating to me. The more I read them, the more I began to wonder, well, maybe there is a God. Maybe this Bible actually is not just a human book. Maybe it is God's word, because he kept poking at me and stirring things up in me. Shame sometimes, conviction other times, encouragement. I mean, it just, it was doing stuff in me. And the Bible began, it began to haunt me, began to consume me. I tell myself, okay, I'm going to just take 10 minutes and read something from the Bible today. And then start reading, and then an hour go by, and two hours, and three hours, and then half an afternoon or all of an afternoon and all I can say is it wasn't a great semester academically. <laughs> Thanks be to God, I made it through. In Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8 and he says, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what the Bible became for me. It became food. It became sustenance. It became life for me. And God used it to change the whole trajectory of my life. He, uh, he used it to use the Bible to confront, my, uh, confront me over my pettiness, my self-centeredness, to uh, humble me in my pride and in my arrogance. He used it to uh, lead me to Christ. I met Christ through the pages of Scripture in ways that I never even imagined prior to that, imagined that it could be possible. He used the Bible then to convict me of my sin. He used it to free me from my destructive values and habits. He, he used it to encourage me, to, to strengthen and shape me as I began and continued in my life with Christ. 
And so if, to continue with the sort of building metaphor, if you will, God first used the Bible in my life as a wrecking ball to destroy the old foundations of my life. And then he used it as sort of like rebar to, uh, that, to hold my, my new life together. The Bible did that. God used the Bible that, that way in my life. What happened to me was kind of what happened to the folks in Thessalonica that Paul wrote to in 1 Thessalonians 2. When you received the word of God, when you received the word of God, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. When you received the word of God, you accepted it. You accepted it. You accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. Now, on a regular basis, a weekly basis really, I talk to people who do not in any way believe that the Bible is the word of God. Many of them don't believe that God is even. They just have all kinds of doubts and cynicisms about the Bible, about God, about the Christian faith. Uh, they just don't believe that the Bible is God-inspired. They're, influ- they're influenced by novelists like Dan Brown, who spins out a lot of conspiracy theories about hidden agendas by the ch- of the church. Or they're influenced maybe by scholars like Bart Ehrman, who's been on a New York Times bestseller list regularly for the past 15 years or so. And uh, Bart Ehrman is known for having these... Uh, um, hyperbolic, sensationalist kinds of titles in his books. And then when you read the books, you find out that what he does is he, uh, he makes these big claims. He, he, he uh, creates mountains out of molehills. He, he has a tendency to create problems where problems don't exist. And then he expects readers to share his overzealous worry. And people buy, he sold a lot of books that way. Sensational titles, made up arguments and problems. So what I want to talk about today is the Bible itself. And here's my basic thing. The Bible is, in fact, divinely inspired. It's not a human word. It is the word of God. It is, as Hebrews uh, 4.12 tells us, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I want to begin by turning to 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. It's on page 843 in your pew Bible, 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 17. But as for you, this is Paul writing to his protege, his son in faith, Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm going to focus on that first part of verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. Father Len will pick up on the rest of that verse next week. And I'm going to focus on the first part. And the key question I want to answer is, was the Bible that we have really written by God? What do we mean that God wrote it? Now, last week, Paul talked about the trustworthiness of the Bible. And what he did, Pastor Paul, and what he, what he did is he, he talked about why the Bibles that we have, that we currently have, why, those, why the Bibles that we have are faithful copies, true copies of the original manuscripts that were written 2,000 some odd years ago. So I don't want to repeat that. What I want to focus on is the Bible and how it's made up today, okay? But, so I want to start with the, each verse of this first part of 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is God-breathed. That word all is the Greek word pas. And it has a sense of not just all in the sense of the entirety, the sum, but all in the sense of the individual parts. Every word is God-breathed. There's a phrase that kind of that theologians sometimes use, the verbal, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. What that means, the first part of verbal means that the very words, the individual words of the text are inspired, not just the writers themselves or the general ideas behind the writings, the very words themselves, not just some, but the parts also. And plenary inspiration refers to scripture in its entirety. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God, okay? All scripture. That word scripture, the Greek word graphi, refers to God's sacred and authoritative writings. So that means, first of all, the whole of the Old Testament is God's word, and then what came to be known as the New Testament is also God's sacred authoritative writing. It's the word of God. The writings about Jesus, who he is, why he came, what he did, what he said, what he, what he did in, in establishing the church and what that means for the church, all of that. So again, last week Paul talked about why the, Bible, the Bibles we have are trustworthy copies of the original documents, why we can have confidence that our own Bibles are accurate. What I want to talk about today about, is about the actual books of the Bible. Do we have only the books in our Bibles today that God wants to be in there? And are all the books that God inspired in our current Bibles, our 66 uh, books in our Bibles? So let me start with the Hebrew Scriptures, with the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, scholars aren't in full consensus about when the Hebrew scriptures were codified. They, they all agree it happened sometime between the second century BC and the second century AD. And under Jewish tradition, the Jewish tradition says it happened the council at a, a city called Jamnia in AD 90. The Jamnia is now the Israeli town called Yavne. But it happened the council of Jamnia. And what, what happened there, suppose, uh, arguably, is that they finalized the list of books in the Hebrew scriptures that we have today. But what, would they, what they were really doing is recognizing what their people had accepted as God's word for centuries before that. 
They, they were just recognizing, putting their stamp of approval on what the Jewish people had already recognized for centuries as God's word. Now, one of the, if you will, endorsements of the Hebrew scriptures is from the New Testament. New Testament scholar Roger Nicole, who was a professor at Gordon Conwell Seminary for decades and he passed away somewhat recently. Roger Nicole has listed 295 times that the New Testament, 295 times that the New Testament looks at the Old Testament and affirms it as the authoritative writing or the authoritative word of God, okay? 295, 295 times the New Testament says the Old Testament that we have in our Bibles today is God's word. Now, it's not just Roger Nicole who says stuff like this. Jesus himself affirmed the Old Testament scriptures, affirmed the Hebrew scriptures. He believed that all scripture, every word, all scripture in its entirety, all the Old Testament would be fulfilled by him. In Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Law and the prophets, that means the, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen may disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. So here's Jesus talking about verbal plenary inspiration, if you will. Every word, even the smallest word, even the seemingly most insignificant word, Jesus said, is God's word. And all of it in its entirety is God's word. Jesus in the Gospels referenced, references Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaac and Jacob, manna in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses as a lawgiver, David and Solomon, the queen of Sheba, Elijah and Elisha, the widow of Zarephath, Naaman, Zechariah, even Jonah. Never questioning a single event, a single miracle, or a single historical claim. Jesus clearly believed in the accuracy, the historicity of the biblical record, of the Old Testament record. Now, what about the New Testament? How did that come into being? Well, part of what was going on is that the, the, the Christian movement, the, the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry, they began to get old. They were dying, they were growing old, and there were some other fraudulent claims that were starting to appear, some false, if you will, gospels. And so they decided, we need to write this down, we need to record this. Luke talks about... Uh, Paul talked about Luke, the preface to the beginning of, his, of the Gospel of Luke, which is also in the book of Acts, talking about what Luke did to get, gather material together. So he's an example of somebody starting to put this stuff together, taking extreme diligence, doing extreme diligence, taking extreme pain to put it together rightly. So that's what began to happen. And the New Testament was the result. And they used basically four criteria to determine what belonged in the New Testament. The first criteria was that the book must have been written by an apostle or based on an apostle's eyewitness testimony, okay? 
So Luke, for example, he, was, he wasn't there at the beginning of the Jesus movement, but he talked to Peter, he, talked to, he, was, he traveled with Paul. He's an example of somebody with an eyewitness testimony that, that gets included in his, in his gospel, the gospel of Luke. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 19, uh, 2, 19 and 20, you are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Built on the foundation of the apostles, that's the New Testament. And the prophets, that's the Old Testament. With Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. Christ Jesus, the foundation of both of them is Jesus. The Old Testament prophesies about Jesus. Jesus in the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. He holds the entire Bible together. In one way or another, the Bible is focused on Jesus. He is its foundation. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. In the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is the word of God. So, must have been written by an apostle, the eyewitness, or having the eyewitness uh, testimony, eyewitness testimony of an apostle. Second one, the Bible must possess merit and authority in its use. Merit and authority in its use. So you have the, the authority, the texts that the, that the apostles were writing, that the eyewitnesses were writing like Luke, but there's other people writing stuff as well. Now here's the thing. The Bible has everything that we need. God gives us everything that we need in the Bible. But for some of us, it doesn't give us everything that we want. We start to speculate about stuff. So the book of Enoch, for example, is, you know, I've, I've, I don't know why, but in the last few months I've had a bunch of people ask me about this book of Enoch. Uh, it's speculation about things that the Bible doesn't talk about. It talks that, that we kind of are interested in, so people read stuff like that. Or, you know, in the Bible we hear about Jesus being born, being dedicated as an infant in the temple in Jerusalem, then, then we don't know what happens for the next 12 years until Luke records him going to the temple in Jerusalem again with his father. And people say, well, what was Jesus like as a kid? What, what did he do? How, you know, what, what, was, what was it like being a parent of Jesus the kid? You know, Bible doesn't talk about that, so, but there is a book that was written, The Infancy of Jesus by a guy named Thomas, not the same one as the Gospel of Thomas, different Thomas. But in that Gospel of Thomas, in that book about the infancy of Jesus in, the, in, a, in, in, the, in that book, there are all kinds of miracle stories. For example, there's a story about a guy who gets cursed by, uh, he gets this kind of bewitching spell on him and he gets changed into a mule, okay? Now there are times when my wife thinks that I've been changed into a mule. I can't disagree with her on that. But in this, in this book, <laughs> he gets changed into a mule and then the baby Jesus is put on the mule's back and the guy turns back into a man. You can see how that's really different than what we actually have in our Bibles. The, Bible, the book must possess merit and authority in its use. It must fit with the rest of the scripture. And these narratives that were written, these pieces that were written, they just didn't really fit. Sometimes they out and out disagreed with what was in scripture or they didn't fit the style of the scripture. They just didn't have anything important to say. Okay? 
So, written by an apostle, having merit, possessing merit and authority in its own use, it also must be accepted by the larger church. That was a third criteria that was used. Not just a particular congregation or a particular segment of the church. It had to be used by the larger church. So, for example, the book of, of uh, uh, Ephesians, the book written to the church at Ephesus. It was written to a particular church, the church at Ephesus, but it had really wide circulation. We know it had wide circulation in the area around Ephesus, but more broadly than that as well. People were reading it all across the church, east and west and all over. That's a mark of God's hand upon it as being a work of God. And then fourth, it must be approved by the decision of the church, church with a big C, the whole church. So, for example, in AD 200, there's something called a Muratorian uh, canon that was written. It had most of the books that are now part of our um, New Testament. Uh, and, but, and so the core of what we have is a New Testament. But, but uh, the Bible as we have it today was put together um, by uh, Athanasius in AD 367. Athanasius, AD 367, all 27 books of our New Testament, he he compiled that list. And that list was approved by a church council meeting in Hippo in 393. And then again later, another church council in Carthage in 397. And in both these two church councils, it wasn't just a small segment of the church. It was from every, literally every part of the church, wherever the church was, they sent representatives to this council. Okay? From every part, east and west, north and south. Europe and Asia, they came to be part of this church council and they all agreed, they all agreed that this is the word of God, that these books belong in the, in the New Testament canon, if you will. F.F. Bruce puts, puts it this way. F.F. Bruce, Bruce was a noted New Testament caller, uh, scholar. What is, he says, what is particularly important to notice is that the New Testament canon was not demarcated by the arbitrary decree of any church council, ultimately. When at last a church council, the Synod of Hippo in AD 393, listed the 27 books of the New Testament, it did not confer upon them any authority which they, which they did not already possess, but simply recorded their previously established canonicity, their previously established uh, reputation, if you will, as being God's word. This speaks against the arguments that Bart Ehrman and others say is that the scriptures were just PowerPoints, power plays, that the people who, who control the, the, the reading, the putting together of the canon just put the books in there that, that endorse their position. That's simply not true. It's not true in any way. The whole church came together to acknowledge what the whole church had, been, had already agreed upon as, as the word of God. For decades and decades and decades, they had agreed that this is the authoritative word of God. And what the councils did from all over the church to say, yeah, that's right. It wasn't a power play. It wasn't just a few elites uh, trying to advance their own narrow position. You, you get what I'm saying? So, let's move on back. To, let's go back to 2 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. 
This is the Greek word theopnistos. What it means is that God literally breathed out scripture. Just like he breathed creation into existence, he spoke creation into existence, he breathed out and created the scriptures, if you will, the authoritative word of God. He spoke scripture into existence. He is its source. So J.A. Packer uh, calls the Bible God preaching. And Augustine described it as love letters from home. Love letters from home. Now, what's going on here? Bruce Mill observes that only God truly knows God. Only God truly knows God. And what God is doing through the scripture is revealing himself to us. And apart from God revealing himself to us, we would not truly know him. We wouldn't know him. There are things we can know about God outside the scripture. Through creation, we can know that something about the majesty and the power and maybe the creativity, the order of God. We can know something about God through our conscience. We can know that there's a right and a wrong. There is an ethical law in a, in a sense at work in our lives and in the universe. We can know some, but we can't know God personally outside of God revealing himself personally to us. And he does that through the scriptures. That's important to know. Mark Shaw writes, we are helpless to know God unless he takes the initiative. But Christianity is based on the great and glad fact that God has done precisely that. He has shown us who he is and how we can know him. God has shown us who he is and how we can know him. That's what the Bible is. Well, what about the human authors of scripture? There are over 40 human authors that, that were involved in the writing of the scriptures, right? How does, it, how does that fit in with the idea that God is the author of scripture? Well, Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, that verb, which is translated as carried along, is also used in Acts 27, 15. It's the Greek verb pheromenoi. And what, it, what that word is used to, is, talk, is used to talk about a ship being driven along by a storm at sea. A ship being driven along by a storm at sea. So Peter's using a word picture here. What he's basically saying is that while the human authors of the Bible wrote the words that came into their minds, they were aware of and submitted, su submitted themselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, which guided their hearts and their minds and their pens and motivated them to write the word of the very words of God. Okay? Both the words of humans and the word of God flow together. The, the word for that, the theological word for that is confluent. They were confluent. Both the words of humans and the word of God flow together. But in a way that God's intentions were fully realized, 
while our participation was fully used. Okay? So these guys, these human authors were writing, we don't know if they were all guys actually. We just don't know everything about who all of the authors that there were. The writers were writing in their time and language and level of education, understanding of nature, universe of their day. And it reflect, the, the writings reflect who they were as human beings and their cultural and setting and other settings. But yet God ensured that every word was there as he intended. There is nothing in the Bible that God didn't want in it. And every word in the Bible is there because God wanted it there. There's nothing in the Bible that God didn't want in it, and every word in the Bible is there because God intended it. Now, we don't know how that worked. We don't know how it's possible for human beings to, be, to bring all of their background and perspective and temperament into it and get God to, be, get to come out with exactly what God intended. But that doesn't bother me all that much because I know I'm a finite human mind. And I know God isn't finite. He's an infinite mind. So why would we believe that finite human beings could understand the infinite mind, how the infinite mind of God works, right? There's nothing illogical about not understanding an infinite mind. So we take God at his word in this. Kevin DeYoung Kevin de writes, Ultimately, ultimately, we can believe the Bible because we believe in the power and wisdom and goodness and truthfulness of the God whose authority and veracity cannot be separated from the Bible. We trust the Bible because it is God's Bible. And God being God, we have every reason to take him at his word. And God being God, we have every reason to take him at his word. Now, several weeks ago, um, I was trying to change a light bulb. Yeah, you can think about that. How many, how many Greeks does it take to change a light bulb? Well, in this place, it took more than one because I couldn't change it. I couldn't get my hand in. The, the light fixture was, was narrow. It was, it was wrapped right around the bulb. I couldn't get my hand in to turn the bulb at all. And I started thinking to myself, there must be some kind of special tool you have to use to do this. I, 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 there must be, because somebody's got to change these light bulbs somewhere. So I Googled, and it's you know, how do you change light bulbs? How do you remove light bulbs from tight fixtures? And wouldn't you know it, Google gave me an answer. There actually is a tool that helps you to do that. You know what that tool is? Duct tape. Duct tape. There was a little video that showed me how to figure how to stick the duct tape on, on the light bulb itself and to create with extra parts of the duct tape to create a handle so I could twist it like this and just twist it off that way, and then I could twist the new bulb on that same way. There's a tool. Well, maybe a lot of you know this, but for the sake of those who might not know this, there are tools. They're really actually very helpful tools for reading 
and feeding and getting to know the Bible better. I want to give you three simple tools today. Now, here's a tool that you may never have thought of. Well, some of you think about it all the time, but for some of us, you know, of an advanced age, like me, don't think of our phones as a tool. But for a lot of you, the, the phone is, you know, your, your most basic tool. But on your phone, you can download an app like the YouVersion Bible app. And you can use it because it's a, you know, you can just go to, go to YouVersion, you know, and look at Bible app, go to you, you I like YouVersion a lot, so drop it. You can download it. And in YouVersion, there are all kinds of Bible plans. There are Bible plans about different themes, topics in the Bible. Maybe you want to learn about uh, forgiveness, or maybe you want to learn about grieving, or maybe you want to learn about generosity, or maybe you want to learn about comfort or peace or anxiety, you know, so different kinds of themes. There are also uh, reading plans for different books of the Bible, the book of Psalms or the book of James or the book of Exodus, whatever. There are reading plans for, for reading through the whole Bible in a year, different kinds of stuff like that. Not only are there all kinds of reading plans, but the, but the version does a lot of work for you. It even reads for you. So let's say you're driving, you're doing chores. You can, on the YouVersion app, you can just click on the Audible thing and it'll read to you while you're doing something else. It'll read, you know, let's say I want to read the book of Acts. It'll read to me while I'm doing other stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a handy little tool, you know? And, and just because it's on your phone doesn't mean it isn't good. Okay? This is, again, for older people like me. Okay, now, an, another tool... There's, some, there's something called study Bibles. There are all kinds of study Bibles. And what study Bibles are Bibles with the full text of Scripture in them, but also with all kinds of notes. They, they often start with a, a kind of a, a brief introduction to the, whatever book you're reading, background, history, when it was written, who wrote it, that kind of stuff. And then as you start reading through the Bible, there are all kinds of explanations, notes about various things that help you understand it better. Okay? Uh, so there are things like NIV study Bible, ESVs, NIV, New International Version Study Bible, English Standard Version Study Bible. There are things like Recovery Study Bibles. There are all kinds of different study Bibles, and you can, you can check them out. You can, uh, you can, again, go to Amazon, whatever, and check out the descriptions and, or talk to people who have study Bibles and see what works for you. I have about 12 of them, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, so here's the thing. The study Bibles are really useful, but you've got to make sure... That, they don't, that you don't spend most of your time reading the notes instead of the Bible itself. You want to put most of your emphasis on actually reading the Bible text for yourself and not get hung up on the notes. Use the notes to help you, not to, not to d- distract you from the Bible itself, okay? And then the third thing, if you want to go deeper, there are also online study tools, most of which are free. A lot of them are free, like Bible Gateway or Bible.org, or Blue Letter Bible, any study tools, you can find all kinds of translations of the Bible, all kinds of, in different languages, there are thousands of, you know, languages that you can find in these study tools. You can find um, dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, and commentaries, and all that kind of stuff. You can, all kinds of cool stuff, which again, you, want, you don't want to get too lost in. I can get lost, I get lost in that kind of stuff. But anyway, they're there for you, and you can use them to help you to, to deepen your understanding and your appreciation of God's Word, okay? So tools, hacks you can use to increase your understanding of the Bible, okay? Now, I want to close with this. I want to go back to First, Thess- Thess- uh, yeah. First Thessalonians 2, okay? When you received the Word of God, 
You accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. Now, here's the thing. Scripture is God's word. It's God's word whether you or I or anyone else believes it. It's God's word. And God gave us his word to help us to know him and to become like him. But a couple things need to happen for that to happen. You have to actually receive the word of God and you have to accept it as his word, which means you have to take it off the shelf and use it so that it goes from the shelf into your heart, from shelf into soul. You get what I'm saying? So for those of you who already believe that the Bible is the word of God, read it. Don't leave it on the shelf. Read it. Read it a lot. Feed on it, live in it, let it marinate your soul. Let it, let it stew in you and renew your mind and shape your character. The Bible is not, meant, not meant to be like a gym membership where you have the membership card in your wallet but you, you don't use it to get to the gym. The Bible is meant to let you get into God's word so that God's word gets into you. You get what I'm saying? And then for those of us who aren't sure if the Bible is God's word, just really not sure, that's okay. What I'd recommend to you is that you just start reading and see what happens. See if it starts to grab you too. See if it starts to resonate with you. See if it starts to become self-authenticating to you as it did for me. And I also suggest that you pray a prayer something like this. God, I don't know if you exist. But if you're real, if you exist, if you're real, and if this Bible is really your word, Show me, show me who you are. Show me that you are. Show me what you want to say. Help me to hear what you want. So just throw out a prayer. Throw out a prayer into the universe, if you will, and see if God hears it and speaks back to you. Put him to the test. Put him to the test. Allow him to speak to you. Jeremiah 29, 11 uh, through 13, in, in the passage, God makes a promise. He promises that he will come and reveal himself to whoever diligently seeks him. This is what the text says. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and finally, when you seek me with all your heart, that is God's promise to you. Maybe so for us. May we seek him with our whole hearts and find him in the pages of his word. Let's pray.